Well, today I'm thrilled to have with me Sarah Nolet from Tenacious Ventures. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad you're here. You are someone who is pursuing the audacious and tenacious career in ag tech. So first of all, for anyone that doesn't know, what, what is ag tech? And I'd love to know how you ended up getting into this. <laughs> sure. Um, so we think of ag tech as innovations all along the food and ag value chain. And in particular for us, we've observed and experienced how much climate is putting pressure on the food system. And our belief is that the future of food and agriculture, how we produce it, how we transport it, how we eat it is going to have to look really different. And we invest in the technologies that are underpinning that transition. So it might be pre-farm gate, it might be on the farm, it might be in the supply chain. It's definitely not all software, uh, mm -hmm. but it's all related to, to food and ag. So everything and ends up in terms on of our plates, basically. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, definitely. Everything that ends up on the plates and how it gets there. So we're in like pre-farm gate, like a green ammonia company that's creating a new pathway to make fertilizer. We're in on-farm robotics. We think about pest management. We're in packaging companies and waste management and natural capital platforms and alternative protein. So maybe some people think ag tech is quite narrow and we're quite niche. From where I sit, it's pretty broad. <laughs> And you're based in Sydney, Australia. Um, you grew up in California. So uh, where did this story begin? Like, uh, did you grow up in a farming family? Um, what, were you growing oranges? What's the story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't. Um, we Dad had a bit of a hobby farm, uh, and I spent some time there as a kid. It's it truly hobby farm. Like, I think we mostly grow rocks and squirrels, <laughs> so not commercial at all. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And I played sports really competitively, so always cared about food, but I guess the story for my parents was go make money, then do something good for the world. And I, I listened at first, went out to the East Coast, studied computer science, got involved in, in technology, but had a moment in my kind of early 20s where I said, all right, you know, I'm an adult now. I'm not playing sports anymore. What do I actually want to do? Um, and found myself in the middle of a tomato field in South America, harvesting tomatoes. Um, I went down there to go hiking and ended up finding farms fascinating and, and spent almost a year living uh, on different farms in South America. And it was just a real light bulb moment for me of how uh, much the food system is under pressure from climate, mm -hmm. how much technology can play a role and how much I wanted to be involved in making that happen. And that kicked off what's now been a decade of uh, trying to do so. Wow. So a simple holiday hike uh, turned into a career. What what was the real thing that, that really got you excited about it on that tomato farm was it like a kind of job to pay for pay the rent while you were staying you just it, it must be quite um i've always thought that the uh, the tourism where you go and work on a vineyard seems uh, kind of romantic <laughs> and fun but then i realized just how hard it yeah. is working in exactly in, in those conditions right totally it seems really fun until it's you know really early in the morning and the grapes are frozen and you're trying to pick them and you realize that by the time you get to the end of the row and walk up the stairs and, and dump the bucket, you make about 50 cents or whatever. And you've got to do that the whole day. And you're like, wait a second, this is insane. And really, I mean, humbling, right? I was again, an athlete and the worked as hard as I could to harvest grapes and just barely could make half of what people who were doing it full-time to support a family were doing. Um, so truly humbling as well. But yeah, it was, it was moments like that. Um, seeing how hard the manual labor is, talking to growers about how they think about finances, how they think about trade, market access, how they think about climate pressures that just really opened my eyes to how much opportunity there was. And the kinds of technologies that I'd been building in the defense industry were things like large-scale remote sensing systems. And so it was not a huge jump for me to say, wait a second, we could be 
doing things like providing no novel forms of crop insurance or building mm -hmm. robots to do this harvesting. And it, it kind of raised a question for me of, was anyone doing that? And if not, should they be? And that was kind of around just after 2012 when Monsanto acquired the Climate Corporation. And so mm -hmm. there was a pending wave of uh, investment coming into ag tech or what is now called ag tech. And there were a few people to talk to, not a ton, but um, that kicked off my journey and which, which took me through sort of corporate innovation, corporate sustainability work, I actually wrote a master's thesis on impact investing in food and ag, did research in India on transition to organic farming. So I was truly on a journey of, do I want to be at a big company changing it a little? Do I want to be at a small company building something new? And never thought I would end up on the investment side of the table, to be honest, but that is where I have found myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's good you've gravitated in this direction. What took you uh, to Australia initially, and and or is that the, the you know the place you think is the the, the epicenter of what needs to change in in ag? <laughs> I wish that I could say you know I pulled out a map and did research on what was the best place to go and picked Australia. It's it's not true, unfortunately. We moved for my partner's job. He was at a tech company, and we thought, oh well, you know, in the worst case, we'll spend a year on the beach. But truly, we have stayed because it is a world class place to be doing this. And I, mm -hmm. um, we are fortunate in having the option to go elsewhere, um, including back to the US where by all accounts, there's more ag and more capital, um, but have decided to stay. And a lot of that is because Australia is unique in, in how much we export, in how good we are at agriculture, and how much of our research and innovation has gone into climate adaptive agriculture. We've got really poor soils here. We've got an export-oriented economy. We don't really have subsidies, huge climate volatility. And so to be able to farm here, you have to be quite innovative. And mm -hmm. that means that the research and technology done here is now pretty applicable to the rest of the world. If you think of something like cover cropping or no-till, mm -hmm. which is now getting a lot of interest in the regen community in the US, we've been doing that in Australia for 20 years. And so when I first started poking around agriculture, you know, from the beach, albeit uh, in Australia, I just realized the potential of the underlying technology and research here and no one was commercializing it. And so I initially started an advisory business to help kind of build the ecosystem and, and work with startups who were going on that journey. And over time saw that there actually was, there were really good companies and there were investors calling us saying, you guys have deal flow. And finally we said, all right, someone needs to raise a fund. Oh wait, maybe that should be us. Um, and so we did. Uh, I mean, I imagine back then there wasn't like a whole ton of ag tech uh, early stage VCs in Australia. So you're making it sound reasonably like a breeze, um, which is, you know, <laughs> all kudos to you for actually making this happen. But that must have been quite a struggle or, or certainly any kind of fundraising is pretty, pretty tough slog. So, so tell me about fund one, like what were the, what were the initial intentions? Like, what did you hope to raise? What, what were the, yeah. the, the learnings and like, how long did it roughly take? And, um, and, and, you know, um, what, what were the outcomes that you think a listener could learn from? Sure. So we were the first actually dedicated, um, agri-food venture firm in Australia. Um, and probably if not the first, maybe one of the only sector specific firms. So just to give a sense of kind of how early the ecosystem was, and you know, this wasn't that long ago, um, for four years, uh, when we kind of kicked off fundraising. So it's come a long way. There are other funds now and, um, other firms, but, uh, we were the first kind of dedicated firm. So yeah, I mean, how do you raise a fund? I had raised money. I had run businesses. I'd run my own advisory business. I had found co-founded an accelerator and raised money for that and supported companies through that. So it wasn't unfamiliar to raising, but for sure, navigating the world of family offices and institutional investors. And how do people think about allocations? Like a whole different 
set of language and mm-hmm. um, even how do you just get in front of them? I remember we, Matthew, my business partner and I sat down and said, okay, we're, you know, we're committed to doing this. We had a bit of an idea of the model, um, although it would eventually change. We said, all right, how do we get in front of people? Um, and we thought, well, we've got a newsletter that we've been putting out. We do the podcast. Um, we should just tell our audience that we're raising and then people will we'll invest. And so we wrote uh, this email that was like, Australia needs an ag tech VC. So we're building one. And in our minds, we were fully like, absolutely. That was a fundraising email. Like, yes, it went through a newsletter, <laughs> but we thought people would respond to being like, where do I sign up? How do I give you money? Um, that's not what happened. <laughs> it turns out. Uh, no one yeah. said that. A lot of people were like, cool. Sounds good. Good luck. Have fun. Um, no one said, where do I sign? So yeah. that was a good dose of like, wait a second, what are we actually trying to do here? Um, how do you fundraise? And I mean, really the advice that we give startups and have seen work on that side applies to raising a venture fund too. You're running a sales process. So who are the mm-hmm. personas? What journey do you want to take them on? What you know collateral do you need to do that? And uh, you're really running a sales process. And so that's what we ended up doing. Um, it took about two years actually to raise the first fund in total. We got the first close away um, at just over, well, at about 20 million in a year. And then got on with, yeah, thank you. It was, um, we're really proud of it. I don't know, now that we're raising again and I have way more than a PowerPoint deck, I don't really Mm -hmm. know how we raised 20 million with a PowerPoint deck, but (laughs) but we did. (laughs) And I mean, a lot of conversations, right? I think to get to what's about 60 investors in fund one, we would have had 300 meetings. So um, it's it's a lot of work for sure. And those Um, are already really well-qualified meetings, right? It's not like you came up with 60 names. Uh, I'm sure there was a lot of work to get to those 60. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of jumping network. Um, You know, you talk to someone and they say, you sound impressive. It's not a fit for me. Here's someone else. Or Mm -hmm. um, we're not investing right now. Talk to this person or, you know, whatever it might be. Some of them are dead ends, but some of them are not. And so, um, yeah, it does end up being, as they say, kissing a lot of frogs. I don't know that I, you know, call them frogs, but (laughs) it's a lot of work. (laughs) Amazing. Um, and what did you end up on your second close or final close for the fund? Yeah. So this was wild. We, um, I mean, getting to 20 million was, was really challenging. Um, actually getting to 16, we thought, uh, we'd then get to 20 and even that last four after having 16 committed, um, with cornerstones who are willing to be public, um, Mm -hmm. was still really tough. We got to 20. And then um, it was, we kind of put our heads down investing. It was also when COVID hit. So we, we actually did our first close on the day the Australian Stock Exchange kind of crashed because of COVID, or sorry, did our first capital call. And so we had oh, to wow. send this email or make this phone call that was like, hey, remember that conversation we had back in <laughs> August? Now the world is literally in the most uncertain phase it's ever been in. Can we have your first capital call? <laughs> and, so, and so that was, I guess you earn your name tenacious in in small ways and big ways, but that was one of them. And so then we, then we put our heads down and made six investments that year. We had you know companies we had loved and wanted to work with um, and then kind of kept raising after that. But it was still, to be honest, a bit of a slog. Like, yes, you have companies, but it's still early and we're worried about COVID and everyone's remote. And so it was still tough. Um, we did a second close, I think maybe around 26. Um, and then we were like, are we ever going to get to 30? That was really the target. And it just happened that once we said, okay, we think we're at 30, we're going to close. We got to 30 and then we immediately had commitments over that. And we're like, oh my gosh, I guess we'll raise it to 35. So we got approval to do that. And then we were immediately oversubscribed again. And I think some of this was a sign of markets in 2021, for sure. We were beneficiaries Mm. of that. But the psychology of uh, momentum and FOMO is truly real. I mean, I had... I had people calling me or or emailing me saying like, what the heck we, we wanted to commit. Like, I'm really disappointed. 
And from where I sat, like I'd been emailing them for six months, every couple of weeks and they weren't responding. And so <laughs> it was just wild to me that that was the response, but, um, you know, everyone, there's two sides of every coin. So I'm sure their story was different. Um, but yeah, ended up oversubscribing, stopping at 35 and getting on with, with focus on investing. Well, that's, you know, an amazing story. And it also kind of highlights just as you pointed out the, the kind of human side of this and, and the work you're doing with your startups around fundraisers. I think everybody sees these stories about, and, and you even mentioned it, I don't know how we raised 20 million with a pitch deck, but really you didn't, you, you, you had the pitch deck as a talking point, but it's all the work that's got in to get to you to that point where you can answer that, you know, the, the tough questions straight off the bat, um, because you really understand and know the market and, and, and and what you want to what you want to do so i think that momentum element is is critical and it often gets overlooked because the people you speak to six months or nine months ago um you know that might have been interested may have found something else that they want to do so it's kind of a bit like herding sheep i guess to, to put it in agricultural terms <laughs> so so well done you know you mentioned at the top of the 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 show that you know this strongly links into climate i, I just want to touch on that slightly because was the ag tech i mean like everything is essentially related to nature and climate, uh, all businesses, but of course, agriculture is probably the biggest or, or certainly responsible for, I think, about quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. I think like agriculture is roughly 40% of all land use. So we are talking like incredibly huge numbers and it is intrinsically linked to all the challenges that we're going through. For you, was it more about ag and then all of this stuff kind of just made you more resolute or were you more around um, driven by the climate and the, the the bigger problems and then found ag agriculture as a real conduit where you you felt you thought you could add the create the most um in, you know improvements it was really about both for me like from back in argentina and even if i think back to you know the the rock and squirrel farm which is really a conservation play um mm. and you know healthy food like i've always seen food and ag as a impact sector. I never had those words or thought about it in that way. But for me, leaving, you know, the defense industry that I was in and, and moving into this space was because of impact. And that was was really important to me. I mean, I, I remember coming back from South America and, you know, the, the grocery stores are different there. And you're I was living like a backpacker and trying to not spend money and just walking into a US supermarket and looking around and being like, okay, I want to solve for like something that's sustainable, but not a lot of packaging, but doesn't cost a million dollars and I need to eat it on the go. And like, you're just paralyzed. Like, how do you yeah. make these trade-offs and how do you operate? And the U.S. has more choices than anywhere in the world, let alone, you know, somewhere that's just trying to get food on the plate. Um, so I'm fascinated by that complexity and by agriculture's opportunity to not only do less bad and reduce the emissions of the sector, but also actually do good. Um, you know, we can remove something like 20% of global annual emissions through nature-based solutions. And so it's it's truly this unique opportunity to do good and do well. And that's always been a big driver for me. Like I believe in the power of the private sector to have massive change uh, and see agriculture as a place where it's not a compromise. It's, it's actually both. And for that first thesis that you you raised your your funds with, what did you really drill down on as the most exciting or, or the areas that Tenacious was Tenacious wanted to focus uh, in this big yeah. sort of domain of ag? We I guess think about things maybe a little different than other investors. In it's it's pretty conventional I would say to draw up a thesis along either technology lines like we invest mm. in 
robotics and IoT and software uh, or along value chain lines to say, you know, we invest at the farm gate through to food and, you know, have a kind of linear model. We think that the food system is really complex. And if you simplify things in either of those dimensions, you miss out on um, nuance and, and opportunity for especially business model innovation. And so for us, we think about six pathways that are driving change in food and agriculture. To give you an example, like one of those pathways is lower intensity production. And so mm -hmm. we don't talk about necessarily regen ag or organic farming or premiums for consumers because it's kind of all of those things. Like if you're going to reduce the chemical intensity of production, if you're going to think about reducing the resource intensity of production, you need incentives for farmers that are going to balance profitability with those trade-offs. Those might come from the up or downstream supply chain. So their business model might need to change. It might involve banks to have sustainability linked loans. It might require on-farm practices. It might require different versions of the supply chain. And so again, this kind of segmented view or technology-based view just misses the systems change that we're going to undergo as food and ag faces climate pressures and evolves. And so that's an example of one of our six thematics and those thematics really drive, or we call them pathways, drive the thesis development work we do and, and inform, you know, investments that we make. Very cool. So um, can you give us uh, some examples of the kinds of things that fit within those six things that you were talking about? And what, what were your first investments when you, when you closed those, uh, when you did your initial first close and started to deploy into the, the startups that you must have been talking to for a few months and, and getting excited about? <laughs> Sure. So um, actually our very first investment is it fits into a pathway that we call waste and resource recovery. So how do we identify, reduce, upcycle, reuse, valorize waste? Um, and that's all kinds of waste. And so our first investment is a company called GoTerra, and they are a distributed uh, modular waste management, organic waste management solution. Uh, the fun way to say what they do is a maggot robot, um, which okay. is not untrue. Um, okay. So think of like a 20 foot shipping container unit that could be placed on site, say in the parking garage below a multi-use building that has uh, hospitality and apartments and office buildings and restaurants. Um, and they produce a lot of food waste, right? What comes off our plates, what comes out of our offices. Currently, those businesses have to transport that waste. Um, it's heavy because it's full of water and they take it to a landfill that is filling up and there's increasing pressure to uh, curb the emissions, the methane emissions from those landfills. Um, but also it's just really costly and we're frankly running out of space. And so uh, GoTerra builds what are these kind of 20 foot uh, shipping container units that can go on site that can manage all types of organic waste and that therefore cut out those transport costs and reduce those emissions. The magic inside the box, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's their technology and, and their automation, but it contains a biological process in the form of black soldier fly larva. So ah, uh, okay. out the other end of the process is both a protein product uh, that could be used for, for fish feed or, or other livestock feed, um, as well as a fertilizer product, um, which is the insect poop, the frass. Um, so we love that business. Um, mm -hmm. It's got business model innovation. It's got complex technology and really a founder that's thinking about how the whole system is going to change, not just how the customers are going to use the technology, but what that means for how operations will need to change. And we already have good evidence of, of that starting to happen, which is which is very cool. That is cool. We love Black Soldier Fly. Um, I did a cause artist interview with a company doing just such similar stuff, but they were using palm waste. So 
um yeah it's kind of a miracle creature isn't it the black soldier fly <laughs> absolutely and and what we've seen like i'm sure I, I don't know that business in particular but a lot of the insect farming models are centralized because they want to produce protein and so they're yeah. located near one source of waste and that means they have to build a facility that's near that waste if that waste dries up that facility has utilization problems and they're pretty dependent on um, those inputs. What we love about Gotera is in being decentralized and being able to take any kind of food waste, like solving the food waste side first, they actually have so much more ability to produce the insects and make the protein or turn those ingredients into other higher value products. So a bit of an innovation on the insect side as well. Yeah, very cool. And uh, what could you give a flavor of a couple of other things that um, are in your portfolio? <laughs> sure. So um, I guess I mentioned that lower intensity production theme. Um, we don't invest in a ton that's on farm or sold to farmers, but I'll give you one example of one that is a company called Swarm Farm Robotics. And I love this story because the founders, Andrew and Jossie, are farmers themselves. Um, and they saw that they were coming up against the limits of their current production system, uh, in particular around input use and around equipment size and access to labor. And so instead of trying to kind of beat their head against that wall and continue to expand the farm, they said, why don't we think about innovations in the equipment space? And so they actually went on a journey of building robots uh, to solve some of those problems. Um, that's been a long and winding journey that you know someday I'll have to talk to them about, but ultimately they've built <laughs> a, an autonomous vehicle platform. So you can kind of think about it like the iPhone uh, and the app store, they build the equivalent of the iPhone, you know, the wheel, the platform with the wheels and the chassis mm -hmm. and the engine and the fuel and the path planning and the obstacle detection. Um, and then they and others build apps for the app store in the metaphor, no uh, which might be like weeding technology to have cameras detect the weeds and only spray the weeds instead of the crops or spreading technology or mowing technology. There's some great social media posts of farmers saying, now I never have to mow the lawn again. Um, but also when you mow the turf uh, turf farms more frequently or at night, um, you can get out there when it's wet. You also get a premium because with shaving, if you shave more frequently, you get a kind of finer or a thicker, um, you know, you know, um, hair, same thing with grass. And so they actually get a premium. So I, I love that example because it's again, complex technology, um, mm -hmm. non-traditional founders, massive impact. They're reducing chemical use by up to 98% in many of those applications, but you can start to see how the system is changing more broadly, like those farmers sending out the robots to manage weeds or mow the lawn 24 seven, um, or the, the turf farm. It's not the lawn. I shouldn't say that <laughs> it becomes lawn, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but that that's an example, like, so lower intensity production through autonomy, but a, a kind of business model innovation, uh, as well. Those things kind of go hand in hand often, aren't they? Cause the technology development is really trying to drive some kind of efficiency or improvement in the way you use resources. So yeah, that totally makes sense. So look, these examples are super interesting. Um, wh wh where are you going with this? Like, what, what are you looking for right now? What kind of founders who might be listening to this and what kind of solutions, um, aside from say the lower intensity production and the ones you've just described, uh, what, what are the areas where you think um, you're open for investment? Yeah, so we made 12 investments so far and we definitely have a couple more that will fit into fund one. So open for business. We do focus primarily on Australian originated companies, uh, at least for the rest of fund one. We had a non-Australian allocation, but we've largely used it up. Um, so we are looking for Aussie-based companies, some of our other thematics, sustainable protein, embedded finance and risk, uh, enhanced natural capital, democratized infrastructure. Um, so there's, again, a, a pretty broad view of what we think about. And, and one thing that's really 
kind of key for us. We come in really early, uh, as early as kind of team formation stage or up to sort of seed um, mm-hmm. or a bit later. And we're not just software, as you can tell by those examples. We, yeah. you, know, you can't eat, eat software. Um, and we think solving and, and kind of building the future of the food system requires um, a deep tech lens. So yeah, if you fall into any of those categories or know someone that does, definitely get in touch. There's, um, it's kind of nice that it, like a lot of, as you pointed out, a lot of funders are kind of looking at specific techs, you know, ro- robotics, et cetera. AI, whatever, but you're 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 really broad. Does that link back to the work you were doing before you, you created the fund? I noticed on your website actually you've got kind of your investments, but you also have advisory and and maybe something else. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So we um I ran an advisory firm uh before this and, and Matthew, my business partner, joined me in that business. So we've I guess always done work to both build the ecosystem and help just rise the tide and, and leave all the boats lift, but also to deeply understand how food and ag is changing and do work with farmers and industry groups and corporates. Because our experience is that if you just apply a sort of traditional Silicon Valley style venture lens to food and ag, you end up investing in a bunch of stuff that doesn't work and can ultimately mm-hmm. waste a lot of money. Um, and so coming at that from um, what we now call thesis development, you know, some of it's with partners and paid and a lot of it's not just areas we know we we need to spend time and explore. Yeah, it's pretty core to how we form the views under each of those six pathways that I talked about. And, you know, that makes us faster at, at decisions. Um, it, it adds more value to the companies we work with. It helps us connect more deeply with our investors, a lot of whom are farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big part of what we do. Has it ever almost tempted you into venture building? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. So we, I mean, uh, our original idea for Tenacious was um, more along the lines of a venture studio. What we mm-hmm. quickly realized was to run a venture studio requires a balance sheet that we didn't have um, <laughs> and was probably going to be pretty untenable for a first fund. And, you know, given we hadn't been fund managers before. And so um, we ended up with a more traditional model uh, from a venture fund perspective, knowing that our our thesis and the way we operate is still pretty differentiated being in food and ag and thinking about climate and investing in deep tech. So yeah, I think, you know, fund three, maybe would get back to more venturing for fund two, we'll even have an allocation to go a bit earlier, what we call kind of team formation stage. Um, and then maybe fund three gets us all the way back to venture studio, who knows? Oh, wow. So before we get to fund three, let's quickly talk about fund two. Um, <laughs> you're currently raising or you're, I mean, you've picked a great time. I mean, it's just like dead easy, right? <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, people what... just throwing <laughs> money at us. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, yeah, we just, we just kind of launched fund two and it's, yeah, look, it, it's tough timing from a market perspective, but a, like some of our founders and, and other founders are out there raising and, you know, good companies are raising and we think good funds are raising too, but also frankly, the planet can't wait. Like the markets are doing what the markets are doing, but the planet is not getting cooler. And so yeah. we can sit around waiting for that, but you know, we, we don't think that's the right model. We, we have confidence our models working and, um, want to be out there making that impact. Not to mention that it's the perfect time to be, uh, you know, investing and taking positions in in things that are going to drive a lot of value over, a, you know, a decent period. And and um, as you said, of course, the climate environmental elements of it. But where are all these solutions going to come from? The pressures aren't going to decrease, are they, on manufacturers or on our food system? So uh, we have to keep moving. So I've got every confidence based in uh, your oversubscription in Fund One that that you will probably have the same scenario. Where- 
<laughs> it's unbelievably hard until you've got the right amount of money and then you have other people telling you, uh, wait, what's going on? I, I should be in this as well. So maybe you should just start with that saying, say you're oversubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've thought about it. I'm not sure it would work and, and obviously we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to lie, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, definitely what I can tell you is I, I found it really powerful to be and have been on both sides of the table and, mm -hmm. um, you know, looking a founder in the eye who's raising, like, I know how much is on the line. I've been there on the other side of the table. I am there often on the other side of the table and just the empathy you build and the, mm -hmm. um, I think it makes you, well, it makes me a better investor. Um, mm -hmm. and so I think that's really important. And the, and the people that you're raising money from now, several years down the track after, after fun one, do you feel that there is a different sort of base level of understanding of impact investing? Like, are they asking you more things around, do they want to see specific metrics being tracked or uh, what's your take on the, the changes between fun one and two? I would say we understand the personas that we're speaking to a lot better. And maybe that's a lens through which I can answer the question. So we think about kind of three intersecting circles. You've got people who are interested in, in venture capital, interested in climate and impact or interested in food and ag. And our experience mm -hmm. is that for you to, for one to be interested in tenacious, you kind of need to be in two of the three circles. Okay. We can probably convince you of the third, but we're not going to convince you of two. So if you're just a climate investor, are you really going to get to early stage venture and food nag? That's a bit of a jump. If you're just a food nag, um, you know, if you're a farmer and agribusiness, are you going to get to climate and venture? You know, maybe not. And so mm -hmm. what we see though, is that if you're in the impact and food nag category, maybe you're really focused on regen ag. And so then the conversation immediately goes to, well, how do you think about GMOs? And what do you think about inputs? And how are you measuring impact? And what are the unintended consequences? And you get quite mm -hmm. deep into that um, language and land. If you're talking to someone who's more on the venture and food nag side, maybe it's a lot more about like, okay, do you really understand how parametric insurance works? And do you really get how ag input supply chains work and where the incentives are and what kinds of technologies have you seen and how much mud do you have on your boots? And you might have a, a kind of different set of questions. So I don't know if the conversations have changed, but our understanding of who we're talking to and how we talk about what we do definitely has. That's interesting. I mean, something I'm seeing a lot more is a better understanding or people starting to want to understand how business sort of impacts and relates to nature. And I wonder if like some of this journey, like you mentioned earlier on uh, around sort of no tilling and, and cover crops and, and some of some of those things, which, you know, we've known for maybe tens of, of uh, centuries even, um, like going way back. Do you, do you think that it's, it's this problem that we're in and the solutions that you're working on, what is the balance between technology and just understanding of the natural world? Like where, how do you, how do you sort of uh, work in that sort of intersection? It, it's definitely something that's increased in the kind of zeitgeist, but also in, in our conversations, because there is more interest in call it natural capital or ecosystem services or whatever it might be. It's really complex, right? I think some of the challenge is that you can have solutions that seem impactful, but they're maybe not scalable. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you, like a good example is if you want to increase biodiversity, like how are you going to measure it? We talked to a farmer on the podcast recently who they have really impressive uh, natural capital metrics, but it's because mm -hmm. he and his wife happen to be really keen bird watchers. And so they've oh. literally gone out and counted the species because they love to. And so they've yeah. been able to report the data and get, these different kinds of credits or incentives or credentials, but that's not a scalable solution. And so you yeah. get these really interesting intersections of impact and commerciality. And I guess one thing I've realized is 
venture capital is absolutely only one tool in the toolkit. And just because we have a hammer doesn't mean everything is a nail. And so again, like if we want to transform the food system, we need a broad set of tools in the toolkit. We believe we have a really impactful and powerful one, but it's, it's truly only one of many. A hundred percent. And like you're interested in that equity position in this technology company, but that said company is probably also requiring a, maybe debt finance or, or like capital for like infrastructure projects. And this is where the whole kind of ecosystem and how directing money flows is so powerful because, you know, where people are putting cash is, is you know, the ideas that are going to get have enough fuel to basically turn into reality. So look, I'm delighted that first of all that you uh beat your expectations on fund one i'm confident that you will do the same despite these in you know very difficult economic um conditions in for fundraising i i wonder one thing like in all these travels and everything that you've seen on farms um is there anything that you just frankly just won't eat <laughs> is, there some, <laughs> is, is there a food or thing where you're just like nah i just i i can't bring myself to eat that yeah it's funny um i went to a sheep abattoir once um oh. and got a tour of a sheep abattoir and i thought for sure i would come out of that and at least need you know a while break from meat just because of the, you know, recency of, of seeing it. It actually wasn't the case. Um, and okay. so I don't think there's anything I've seen that's really changed my view. Probably the conversations I can end up having with, you know, whoever serves my coffee about <laughs> how I know who produced their milk and the yeah. feed additives that those cows are eating in this part of the world that has this much rainfall make me but you know, a more or less interesting um, customer or, or dinner table guest. Um, yeah. But I would say, actually, the, the one thing for me that that's always frustrating is I don't love um, seafood. I've never loved seafood. Okay. And um, as a protein, you know, more sustainable protein option, you can argue that that forms a, a place in the menu and I just don't care for it. So I guess I don't eat it, but probably not for any reason other than I don't like it. <laughs> Well, that's fine by me because I adore octopuses and I've just seen recently they're trying to do an <laughs> octopus farm uh, in the Canary Islands, which is like we're talking about one of the most intelligent creatures, basically, certainly the most Indeed. intelligent invertebrate. And it's just like, nah, this doesn't feel right. But hey, that's this is that's a whole different podcast, whole different show. Um, <laughs> your podcast is called Ag Tech So What? And you've done like 200 episodes or something now. So that's serious commitment. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a blast to do it. I mean, I I truly started it because I would go to these conferences. uh, I was new to Australia and there'd be these farmers and I'd want to talk to them, but it felt scary to go up to them. And what would I ask? And somehow I realized that if I went up and said, hey, I have a podcast. Do you want to come on it and tell your story? That was easier. Um, And then they would talk to me for an hour and I got to know them. And so that was truly (laughs) the the kind of impetus. Um, And it's expanded from there. So not only farmers, but investors and startups and our team talking about our theses and how we see the world. So yeah, it's been a blast to do. Well, I'm really glad you came on here. I feel like every time I interview a person, I I end up with a new friend. So Sarah, thank you so much for for joining. Thank you for telling us all this stuff. We're going to have everything in the show notes. So whatever you you, uh, recommend, how do you like to be contacted typically by uh, founders or by potential LPs? Yeah, so we're pretty easy to find, hopefully, on the interwebs. Um, And our website has a form for both startups and investors. We do look at both. Um, It's not like a shrug off for startups. We process that form weekly and actually just made our first investment of someone who we totally didn't know, but came through the form cold. And we ended up doing DD and making the investment. So it does work. And that's where you can find us. You heard it here, guys. Uh, (laughs) Our website is, yeah, tenacious.ventures. 
Amazing. Thank you once again, Sarah. And I really look forward to reading the press release uh, and definitely being invited to the party uh, for fun too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Raph. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.